Welcome to Maximize Your Influence, your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Welcome to another episode of Maximize Your Influence. I'm Steve Olson. I've got Kurt Mortensen here with me, who is feeling a little bit tired and beat up from what I understand. What happened, Kurt? Well, you know, sometimes we don't think clearly, but I ran a half marathon uh, a few days ago, and I am sore. 13.1 miles, and yeah. My, my, I didn't win, but my goals are this. Don't walk, don't die, <laughs> and finish. Well, Pretty those are simple. ambitious goals, and I was been a little ill lately, as you know. And my sister's a marathon runner, and I'm not built to run, and she is built to run. And every year she comes up, and we run this half marathon. And she didn't come up this year, but it was my 16th year in a row, and it was just one of those things where you've just done it, and do you break the tradition? And so, yeah, it was a little painful, but I, I kept my goals, and I made it, and proved to myself that you can do hard things. I think I've met this sister. Doesn't she live down in Vegas? Yeah, she does. And she's built like a bird. She could just float the whole 13 miles. Oh, yeah. As Kurt is built kind of like a linebacker, <laughs> right? Pretty much. And so she's just eases along, 5'3", probably 100 pounds, and <laughs> <laughs> just does it. So it's always humbling, too, when you're running you think you're doing pretty good and the a five-year-old passes you, and you're like, wait a minute. And then a <laughs> five-year-old. 70-year-old woman passes you, like, wait a minute. It can be humbling at times, but I made it. I am sore. I am walking kind of funny. It's, it's going down the stairs that really gets you for some reason, but I'm good. I am I made it, and I'm sure I won't be sore by our next podcast, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. I, you better not be, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on finishing the marathon. That's great. I have never done that, and I don't have any plans. No plans? Well, we'll sign you up. We'll get you going. Oh, okay. Just to do the <laughs> assumptive clothes on me. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> Well, cool. Yeah, I'm headed off fishing this week, so we'll probably have to record later next week. I'm going up into western Montana, one of those guided trips. And it's the only way I can really go fly fishing because, you know, tying the flies and getting tangled and knowing what to do. I like to be able to just say, hey, I'm tangled and hand the pole to the guide, and it's his problem. That's the way to do it. You cook it. Here, fix it. <laughs> yep. Yep, the you can focus on, what's get, on what uh, you like to do. So you're going to do a little fly fishing therapy, huh? Going to do a little fly fishing, going to do a little golfing. We're going up to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, up there on the north edge by Spokane, Washington. And they've got that floating green. If you par that hole, you get a, a plaque that says, I parred the floating uh, green hole, which I announced a few podcasts ago that it's just not crazy about golfing. Going with some family and friends, so that's fun. I like to do it in that instance. We're going to see if we can bring back the plaque, and I won't be as sore. I'll still be able to go downstairs. There you go. Different type of exercise. I'm sure you'll have carts, too, so you won't strain yourself. Oh, yes, yes. We need somebody to tie the flies. We need the cart. This is posh, which is probably not the best way to describe a fly fishing vacation, but nonetheless, it's happening. Sounds like fun. Yeah. I was reading, and, and this is a perfect fit with what we wanted to talk about today. We're going to get into some great information about body language and especially the eyes and what they can tell us. I was laughing the other day. My wife and I watched this show where it, it's a sitcom, and the husband is he's a goof. 
right? And the wife just puts up with him. And he was talking about how he told her a joke and how she laughed like crazy. And she said, yeah, I laughed. And it cuts away to a separate shot of her. And she says, yeah, I laughed, but not with my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> because the eyes are the window to the soul. We can really tell how somebody feels about what's happening by looking at those eyes and the, the muscles around them and how they're in play. Can we not? Oh, the research is astounding as far as what the eyes can tell us. The challenge is most people either don't know, don't care, or they're so concerned about vomiting what they want to say that they're not reading the person and missing all the signs they need to persuade the person. Right. Shutting up and just listening and observing is so much more effective of a persuasive technique than vomiting the features and benefits, like you say. Don't you have a story? I, I seem to remember you were on a flight from New York to L.A. or something, and you sat next to a guy that was a real chatterbox, and you pretty much didn't say anything the whole flight. Is that correct? That's true. And he, what did he say about you in return? Yeah, you know, I was just listening and made some eye contact, and it was mostly just there, and he wanted to talk and didn't say much. I usually like to work on the plane, as you know. Yeah, it was a long flight, New York to L.A., and we landed, and he said, you know what, Kurt, you're one of the most interesting people I've ever met. I'm like, <laughs> what? You don't even know me. I didn't even say anything. He says, you know, that's the best conversation I've had in years. Right. I'm like, thank you very much. I'll take it. And that was just a big indicator of, you know, just people skills and listening and understanding eye contact and how people just really want to talk about themselves. And that's a key part of persuasion. And I've mentioned this before, but great persuaders, first of all, listen three times more. But when you listen with your ears, your eyes, and your heart, they'll tell you everything you need to know to persuade them. It can be that simple. Why do we forget that all the time? I mean, that's just a lesson that you have to learn over and over again. It's because we're so concerned about what to say next. We're so concerned about what's going on in our brain. It's that, I don't know if you've seen the movie Up with the, the talking dogs, when they were like, squirrel. Yeah, right, I love that. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's everybody, squirrel, squirrel, you know, all these things going on in our brain, what to say next, you want to cut in, you want to make sure, instead of just listening, and sometimes we just sit down and take notes and listen and write down what we want to say next, it just comes across as better for the person and we connect more, but it is, it's, it's a lesson we have to continue to learn over and over again, because we're not programmed that way, and no one's really ever been trained. Yeah. I'm continually amazed by it because I'll forget to do it. You know, you get a little bit rusty and then all of a sudden you remember to do this and you're amazed by the power, by your ability to persuade by just listening and paying attention to those cues that are given to us. Because like you said, they tell us pretty much everything we need to know by observing with the body language and what they're saying and with the heart. I mean, I like the way that you uh, worded that. And that's the key. Ears, eyes, and heart. Just learning to read people's body language, to truly listen. And the challenge is also is everyone's in denial. When a corporation will call me up and ask me to do listening training, it's like, oh, you kidding me? You know, I, I like the work. I enjoy the training, but my audience is very hostile <laughs> because they're like, well, you know how to listen. We can do that. But you look at challenges in the workplace. You look at divorce. A lot of this is truly listening to each other and understanding each other. So we have to change the name to empowerment or advanced communication skills to get people into the class, but it is a huge issue for everyone, especially in the workplace, because people just don't listen. I mean, think of it. You try it out. Go down the street or go to a mall and say, hey, how's it going? And you're like, terrible. And people say, oh, great, good, good. Just right over their head. <laughs> right, right. It amazes people that, oh, wow, they, no one is listening to me, and it is definitely a skill we could spend all day on. My wife and I were talking about that the other day, about some of the people that we know that are 
really interesting people. And they seem to be the people that just don't talk a lot about themselves. You might find things out about them inadvertently, but they don't talk a lot about themselves. They let you talk. They ask you questions, and conversely, you just like them. You just think that much more of them. That's true. They know when to listen, and they know when to talk. And they listen a lot more, and people just like them more. Let that be the rule. Let's talk less and listen a lot more. And the news story that we had today is really along those lines. Because there was some bad news in California over the weekend. There was a kidnapping. And this kidnapper took off to one of the most remote places of North America in central Idaho. I'm actually headed up sort of that direction here in a couple of days. And he had this hostage with him. They went into this area where there really aren't very many roads at all. You're pretty much roughing it. You've got to take horses. You've got a backpack. It's the Wild West still. And these horseback riders were up there on a trip, and they passed a man and a girl. And the headline is, is that they saw the fear in her eyes. And they weren't talking. They were just observing. And wow, they sure learned a lot because of it. They called the sheriff. This got out to the FBI. And they were able to successfully rescue this girl just because of what these people perceived in the look in her eyes. That's pretty amazing. And that's the thing. They were perceptive, be able to see that. And at a logical level, like, what? That makes no sense. But we pick up these little micro expressions. We pick up these little feelings. We're natural radars when we want to be to pick up those things when we're really kind of looking for that. Even sometimes when we're not looking for that, it's just so apparent that we pick up on it. So what are some of the things that we should look for? We're persuading, we're negotiating. What will the eyes tell us that it would be a benefit to us? Everything you want to know. If we really, truly learn to understand the eyes, they'll tell us a lot of things. For example, when pupils dilate, that means people are interested. We see this in Asia all the time. You'll go into an eyeglass store and say, hey, how much are your eyeglasses? They're like 20 bucks, and they watch your eyes. And if you don't say anything, they'll say, for the lenses. <laughs> and you're like, well, how much are the lenses? The 20 bucks. And then they'll look at your eyes. If your eyes don't dilate, they'll say for each one. So there's a lot of things that can happen with the eyes. For example, there was an interesting study done with a male and a female. They have them sitting next to each other and look at each other's eyes. And after a while, they start having amorous feelings towards each other. <laughs> can you believe that? <laughs> one of the things you're going to look for, of course, is length of eye contact. And when we teach detecting deception, people always like eye contact, eye contact. But the reality is when you learn to look at deception, you're looking for a difference in eye contact. So you want to find someone's standard behavior a lot of times in a negotiation. You're talking, that's why people talk about the weather and sports to see how much they look at them. So when they get into a situation where they're, not, they're looking at them a lot more or a lot less, then you know there's deception in place. Another one we have to be careful of is sunglasses. We love to wear sunglasses, but... Other people, that triggers distrust. When you can't look at somebody in the eyes, that's lack of confidence. If you're looking at somebody less than 50% of the time, that's insincerity and distance. If you get increased eye contact, maybe they're starting to accept you or your idea. Rapid blinking, you'll see those politicians. That could be either resistance or it's also an indicator of, of lying. You look at those politicians when you know they're lying, you look at their blinking, it does increase. Now, if you get extended eye contact, like 100% of the time, it means the person's either really angry or you're falling in love. <laughs> okay, those are your only two options. And so you really truly need to mirror their eye contact, the length of eye contact, and read their eyes. We talked about in an earlier episode, how do you know if it's a true smile? The eyes will smile 
with the mouth. There are so many things that we can learn about the eyes and the eye contact that we could truly learn to read a person. Right. Right, so the the muscles around the eyes engage, they light up, the, the eyes do when it's a sincere laugh, but when they're just humoring you, this would be good for me to know, then, you know, it's, it's just going to be the mouth muscles and that whole area of the face engaging, and the eyes are, <laughs> are kind of dead. They They don't want to be there, do they? They don't. I mean, you can see them light up. Sometimes when they get excited, you'll see a little more moisture in the eyes, the pupils dilating, they'll widen to get more information because they're getting excited. The eyes truly are the windows to the soul. In fact, there was an interesting case. Pennzoil took Texaco oil to court because they were having all these challenges with this. And one side said, hey, don't look at the jury. This is serious business. Don't look at the jury. Don't joke with the jury. The other side said, hey, look at the jury, smile. And it was devastating because the ones that made eye contact and laughed and smiled won the case and they were awarded $2.5 billion dollars in damages and they had talked to the jury afterwards and they expressed distrust towards the witnesses who had avoided eye contact even going so far as to call them arrogant and indifferent arrogant and indifferent and probably on the flip side you you wonder if they have malicious intentions or or what they're up to you think about walking down the street and you pass somebody who doesn't make eye contact their eyes are darting around they're looking at the ground you're thinking what's this guy up to right it's exactly it, and that's where the sunglasses come in. So it's important when you're talking to somebody, and here's a big thing that's really starting to, let's say, attack society is we're talking to somebody, and we're looking at somebody that walks by, we look at her watch, oh, text, go look at her phone, uh, take a phone call, all these things that are getting us to avoid eye contact. It's really hard to connect somebody when you're doing that, but so many people are doing it now that we're getting used to it. But if you're talking to a prospect or someone you want to truly persuade and influence, Time to just forget the outside distractions, learn to concentrate, make the eye contact, treat them like the most important person on the earth, and it'll make a huge difference. I read a study, because I want to take this into micro-expressions, those, those quick movements that the face or that the body does. I, I believe they call it the limbic brain, you know, that primitive side of the brain that can't go through the social masquerade that we have to, you know, because we have all these social norms that we need to abide by in society to be correct and to be polite. But that limbic caveman brain is still in there running things in the background. And every now and then something gets out where we can tell very quickly what somebody's true feelings are. And in the book, I think it was Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. I'm referring to the study done up at the University of Washington and the married couples. Do you know what I'm referring to? Does that sound familiar? Was this the one where keeping track of how much they looked at each other and how much they argued? I think so. They they did this study where it, it was over 10, 15 years, a long time. And they asked these married couples questions, and the married couples didn't know that they were being recorded by a bunch of video cameras at the time. And they would ask them certain questions about their marriage. And what Gladwell found is that when one of the married or or both of them had a micro-expression of contempt, which is the eyes roll slightly up, which is basically the, oh, come on, you got to be kidding me, look. And it happened in, you know, a half a second. When that was present more than a certain percentage of the time, that couple was virtually guaranteed to be divorced upon the follow-up study 10 to 15 years later. 
And that was such a powerful micro expression about how the person really felt in their subconscious mind about the relationship. With that being said, I think it's, it's pretty hard to spot micro expressions, is it not? Or is there something that we can do as persuaders to, to flag those down? Micro expressions are micro, a fraction of a second. So a lot of times we might miss it, but we're not really concentrating and looking at the person we can pick them up. But even more important, understanding that we've talked about 95% of persuasion involves a subconscious trigger. You have your own subconscious triggers, your instinct, your intuition, your impulses, that inner voice telling you that, look, they're lying. Look, they don't care. Look, they're... we feel these things. And we need to learn to be able to listen to that inner voice. And that was one of the most fascinating things about my research on charisma and interviewing these successful CEOs and leaders and successful persuaders is they would never bring it up. But when you talked about intuition, they all said they would follow it. They would listen to it. Because you take a CEO with 10,000 pages of data, ultimately they got to follow their heart, that instinct, that urge, that impulse, that inner voice. And a lot of times you think, well, you know, that's woo-woo or yeah, whatever. But when you look at the studies, when you go up the, the success ladder, people say, you bet. Because they don't have time to do all the research. A lot of times when they're talking to people, they have to make quick judgments. You got to follow that voice. And that's true for us when we're working with people. We have to listen to our own subconscious triggers, our own inner voice, and that'll make a big difference in success. And not only that, it's great time management. Right, right. It is great time management. We can't simply go through all the data that's available, especially in the information age. My wife and I are car shopping right now. We just can't look at all the specs. We have a couple of neighbors that do a lot of research on things. So we, we use them <laughs> to do a lot of this research because mm -hmm. we don't want to do it. And they'll do a far better job than we can. And we come away with a good solid set of data to make a decision on we're on this car, for example. But, you know, we can't look at everything. So we're looking for as many shortcuts as we possibly can. And that's a great shortcut. Or you take... I had a friend that did all the research, consumer reports, found the perfect car, went to the car dealership and bought something else. <laughs> I don't know if that was a function of a great persuader or what, but sometimes you got to look at the logical and emotional side of what we do. But being a power persuader, you can probably convince a lot of people to go against the logical side when you hit them with the emotion. That's right. That's right. Well, there's the sound, Kurt. That's the persuasion uh, blunder incoming. Hit the deck. Incoming persuasion blunder. Well, one of the 12 laws of persuasion, as you know, is verbal packaging. Every word we use will attract or distract the people that we're trying to persuade. So there's this pizza place in California. I'll just leave it at that. That decided to call themselves Fat Pizza. P-H-A-T. I, I think it was like piled higher and something. I don't know exactly what it stood for. It was creative. It was interesting, but we have to talk about word and word choice that, really? If I'm going to go eat a pizza, do you want to be reminded that you're fat or going to get fat or going to have a lot of calories? Now, they're no longer in business. I'm not sure why. That might be part of the reason. Now, when you go and you like it, you can get past that. But if you've never been there before and you're like, fat pizza, it's going to really hurt getting new customers. And that's important. Every word matters. You look at food. I mean, you can take simple things like snails. What do we call it? Escargot. Caviar. What's caviar? Fish eggs. Yeah, fish eggs. And so we put all these fun names on different things because of how that works. The, one of my favorite, as you know, is the fish out of South America that 
we was imported to America, and they're like, look, this is great. It's tasty. And the waiter would say, hey, we have mahi-mahi, we have salmon, and nobody would order this fish because it was called the Pantagonia toothfish. It doesn't matter what anybody says. Like, yeah, I would like a fillet of toothfish, please. Yeah, that's disgusting. That's not going to do it. And most of our listeners have probably already eaten it because they changed the name to Chilean sea bass. And, and it that's is what, good. I love it is Chilean really good. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why with parents, you don't say leftovers. You say vintage cuisine. I mean, we have options here with our word <laughs> and our word choice and what we call food. And even within the world of steak, and we love steak. And when you ask a waiter or waitress, you know, what's the difference between your ribeye and your filet mignon? And if they're trained right, they'll say, well, the ribeye tends to be a little more marbled. Like marbled, which of course we mean fat, full of fat, more fat, but they don't say that. In fact, a study was done, speaking of beef, with hamburger, where they had the same batch of hamburger and they gave it to two groups of people. Here was the only difference. They were to rate it for quality. So the first group, they said, okay, rate it for quality, cook it up, it's 25% fat. And the second group, go ahead and try it up, it's 75% lean. Okay, well, duh, logically we know what that means. But the evaluations, of course, were the 25% fat group didn't like it. It was greasy, didn't want it. And the 75% lean was, hey, this is good. Can we get some more? So every word we use matters. It triggers different things, especially now that we're using a lot more email, a lot more voicemail where we can't read a lot of those expressions. People have subconscious triggers just with every word we use. You're talking about steak. I went to Nashville, Tennessee a couple of months ago uh, on business. And there is a steakhouse there, and the lo- the locals refer to it as a tourist trap. I believe it's called the Stockyard, and it's a very fancy steakhouse, really old school. It's got that 1920s feeling, and this waiter, he had to be the pro of all pros on verbal packaging for steaks because he was using all that language, and he could present it in such a way that you would just say, I'll take it. It was almost over the top, but... Given the atmosphere and how he was using this and how he was presenting it, I wanted to record it. I mean, this is hilarious. This guy is – I could listen to him all night. Just talk about T-bone steak. He was fantastic. <laughs> in fact, if you want a lesson in verbal packaging, just read those menus because you read about that salad or that steak. It's like, oh, your mouth starts to water. In fact, I was on a, a flight. It was a fairly new flight attendant, and this was back when they used to feed you and they had a choice of a steak or chicken, and they were going through, and everyone, for some reason, everyone was getting steak. And so there was a couple more rows. They're out of steak, and this new flight attendant's like, what do I do? What do I do? And this other flight attendant's like, watch this. Of course, that got my interest. You know, Mr. Persuader, want to listen to what's going on. So this flight attendant's all, look, you have two options tonight. We have a chicken that's marinated to perfection and has mushrooms sautéed, and she just kept going on about the sauce in the garden, fresh vegetables, and Spent about a minute describing this chicken that was going to be so tender it was going to melt in their mouth. Then she says, or you could have a piece of beef. <laughs> piece of beef. <laughs> and that was it. They were like, well, I'll take the chicken. <laughs> they didn't even have any beef. It wasn't even an option. But she was good with their verbal packaging and the words. And this is true at a negotiation or at a restaurant. Every word we use matters. And so when you see something like fat pizza <laughs> – that's not something that's going to have a good association trigger when you are trying to get people into your restaurant. 
in the age of social media, I don't imagine that Fat Pizza would have survived anyways because all of these restaurants want you to post that you're there or that I just ate such and such at XYZ restaurant. <laughs> Can you imagine putting on your Facebook profile, I just ate at Fat Pizza? <laughs> it would just be a horrible social norm there. Yeah, there would be, although some people do take it to the extreme. I think there's one in Arizona called Heart Attack Cafe where they actually label everything with you. They have an aneurysm fries and they have all these different things to where people get excited to go. But they've proven themselves with the good food. So sometimes you can make a joke out of making this to the extreme just like they've done. But for the most part, you got to watch the words you use. You've got a niche market. I think that's actually in Vegas. And I think a guy actually died there. The other day. People thought he was he was faking it, like I'm at the restaurant, I'm having a fake heart attack, I'm gonna get a good laugh. And as you can imagine, it was quite awkward when it was legit and it took the name of the restaurant to a whole new level. Yeah, I'm thinking is that good publicity or bad publicity? Uh, well, I guess any any publicity is good publicity, they say, so we'll we'll see what happens to We'll them. see what happens to the heart attack cafe. Well, everybody, thanks for joining us. We will catch you next week on another episode of Maximize Your Influence. See you, everyone. 